Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome this Thursday morning. We are blessed with rain today to help the flowers and the trees and the food grow. We have a wonderful day this morning. And we have a guest this morning, Miss Judy Ziwas. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Vernon. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And I understand you've spent your whole life sort of improving people and understanding co-ops and the power of co-ops. Yeah, I've been working with cooperatives since I joined the staff of the Wisconsin Federation of Cooperatives in 1981. 1981. What is the power of cooperatives? It enables people to work together and meet their economic and social needs. What they cannot do on their own, the power of the people working together, it ranges here in the United States from in rural communities, getting electricity delivered in remote, isolated communities to the urban areas where perhaps housing is out of reach, but if people work together through the cooperative, they can own the housing and manage it to meet their social needs. Meet their economic and social needs. I mean, that's why I love co-ops. I didn't find out about them until probably 1990-something, 95, Uh, and I wish I had learned about them much sooner. But they're just not taught, and people don't understand them, particularly in urban areas. It seems like they understand them more in rural areas because of farming. And that's how you got started with co-ops? Right. And, and um, well, I was a, really a lobbyist for the Wisconsin Federation Co-ops, and uh, we were blessed, blessed, are blessed here in Wisconsin. Um, our state trade association is very broad. And so in 1981, when I joined the staff, uh, I had to learn uh, about the uh, policy needs of rural electric cooperatives, uh, the rural telephone co-ops, farm supply, marketing credit. But there was also emerging interest. Hospitals wanted to come together and put a, use a co-op to do some joint purchasing, sharing of doctors, so that they could stay and serve smaller communities. And also at the time, um, you know, credit unions uh, serving urban uh, consumers were part of the Federation, and I got familiar and aware of some of those credit union issues. And then, believe it or not, at that time, there was an emerging interest in the worker co-op movement in urban Milwaukee. So I got a huge education. Uh, I come out of more politics, political world. So I got the huge education of how co-ops were meeting economic and social needs in every form of enterprise, urban and rural, here in the state of Wisconsin. And at that time, we did have some emerging worker co-ops in our urban areas. I remember sheet metal workers, primarily African-American urban workers, putting together their own business to do sheet metal fabrication. We did have a fairly strong co-op housing presence in Milwaukee. As a matter of fact, I think HUD, the U.S. Housing Agency, 
was very interested in turning uh, a lot of their low-income housing units over to be converted to co-op ownership. So it's it's a very powerful and widespread, and as you say, people don't understand how co-ops thrive in the U.S. economy. Sort of a hidden hidden gem. A hidden gem. You know, um, I give a definition of co-ops, which I would want to do now because you've mentioned most of the examples of co-ops. So anybody that's listened to this program has heard it before, but if somebody out there is new, a co-op can be any business you can think of. It's a business, but it's owned and controlled by is what makes the difference. Who owns and controls it? If it's owned and controlled by the employees, then it's called a worker co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the people that use the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. And a consumer co-op, uh, we just mentioned uh, credit unions, Judy mentioned credit unions and housing co-ops. In both those examples, the people that use the products own the, the business. And then you would have groups that come together to purchase goods and services. They get bought at a larger quantity, and they, more often they can get a perhaps a better quality at a lower price by buying together. It's called a purchasing co-op. Or they come together to sell their products or services that they make, and that's called a marketing co-op. Those are the main ones, but you have all kinds of different variations of co-op. But it could be any business you can think of. Is that pretty much how you see it, Judy, or you have anything to add to that definition? Yes, no, it's a very good description, um, a very good quick survey. Following up on the marketing, um, again, what intrigued me so much about the agriculture co-ops, uh, when you think about how uh, isolated farmers are um, and you're producing either corn or milk, the individual has a difficult time either uh, getting that milk to market processed into cheese or, or, or milk, other dairy products. Uh, and when you think of corn or soybeans, their market is global in nature. So I was always talking about those agriculture marketing co-ops as uh, the way for the individual farmer to compete in that global marketplace. And you just think of how much capital travels around the globe in a 24-hour period. It usually goes from New York, London, Tokyo, and back again. How, how if you're in rural Route 6, Wisconsin, do you get your grain into that kind of global market? So it's very empowering that way. But on the other side, I'd add to your list, uh, uh, I just got elected to the Board of Group Health Cooperative. And it is one of my favorite stories when I was working with the agriculture co-ops and we were trying to create more health care co-ops. The farmers were just amazed that you could actually hire doctors and serve as a board and manage doctors. Um, <laughs> so one of our challenges and difficulties is helping even those who are members of co-ops to understand the other types of co-ops. You know, you're talking about, in some ways, number six, uh, cooperation among cooperatives and the principles. We normally go over the principles on this show also, but you just hit on the sixth principle, which is cooperation among cooperatives. But when you going back to the farmers, the, the farmers seem to be at the mercy of everything when they're out there by themselves. They are at the mercy of the weather, of the bugs, of the animals. They're at the mercy of whoever is buying their products, whatever middle person, broker is. And when they're by themselves, it, it seems to be a very lonely, hard place to be and a very risky place to be. So by joining together, they have more power. And uh, we had Equal Exchange, which is a worker co-op one that uh, does something called fair trade around the world, where they give farmers, smaller farmers, a fair price 
Kroger product, which takes a lot of that risk away. So they are worker cooperative that works with farming cooperatives around the world, and then they sell to food groceries and uh, other food co-ops. So it's like a triple net worker cooperatives working cooperatives working together cooperatively. What, what are some of the, what do you, what are some of the other things you like about co-ops? They empower people to solve their to solve their needs, financial and social. What what else do you like about co-ops? Well, I think they become for American society, world society, um, they teach us how to work with other people. So they become building blocks for our civil society and participation in our governments, local, state, and federal. Uh, I, again, when I came to the co-op movement, was just absolutely impressed with how active, if, if you were a board member of a cooperative, it was likely you were also involved in your school board or you were engaged in local government. So it becomes a powerful tool to learn how do you participate and make decisions collectively in a democracy. And, and, and that became, I remember as Eastern Europe and Soviet Union were collapsing, a lot of the USAID program folks uh, liked and, and helped send co-op board members over to Europe to help build, and they called it the building block of democracy. So we often, we, again, it's important as an economic tool that the co-ops need to be profitable to make sure that the dairy co-ops are getting paid for the milk. That's their milk check. They have to be profitable to make sure anybody in the housing cooperative, that the roof stays solid, that there's investment to keep the buildings viable. But we often forget that we're teaching civic participation. What impressed me most about co-ops when I learned about them, uh, I'm a property manager. It's what I do in my day job. I I manage apartment buildings, co-ops, and condos. And what I like about co-ops is the fact that people come together and make decisions that are best for the group. They're not necessarily making, matter of fact, the when they're making decisions that's best for the group, they they survive and they're successful. And that is one of the reasons that in this last downturn, in the Great Recessions, we didn't find the co-op housing having anywhere near the, the amount of foreclosures that was happening out there in the other parts of the world in the co-op, in the single-family homes and condominiums. Co-ops just weren't, were not doing that. Likewise, here in Madison, uh, we have a worker co-op known as Union Cab. And during the Great Recession of 2008, as the economy slowed, to your point, all of the owners agreed to reduce hours so that nobody would lose their job. Oh, fantastic. And that's something, again, when you think about how the U.S. economy works and we understand uh, investor-owned businesses, they have to make a profit and they have fixed costs that they need to uh, cut if they're not generating the the income they need to run the business profitably, but usually that results in people losing their jobs and being laid off. So I think the virtue of the worker co-op came through loud and clear. Uh, They didn't want anybody to to lose their job, and therefore collectively they decided how to cut back on hours, make sure everybody was still able to meet their own personal obligations because obviously everybody has to pay for their housing being rent or mortgage. They have food that they have to put on the table, kids that need to get clothed. So, But it was a, a beautiful example of we can work together and make sure
sure that we share the burden of, a, of an economy that is, is slowing down. That is another piece that's fantastic about cooperative is that the focus is on the owners, whoever those owners are, and not a shareholder that may live in a different city, state, or a different country even. You know, we're going to take a short break, and I'd like to come back and talk about the education and, uh, what you call it, civic duty. So we'll be right back. Please don't touch the dial. Have Judy Zigwack on the on the phone with us from Wisconsin talking about the power of cooperatives and her experiences with co-ops. We'll be right back. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power. That's WOL's motto, and that's what makes them a very, very good supporter of and partner of the Everything Cooperative Show. Because information is power, and the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives so that when you get this information, if you use it, you have the power to solve problems in your community. The National Co-op Bank's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. Uh, Judy, uh, going back to education and get people will learn how to work together um, cooperatively, and then they will not only be a board member of a co-op, but a school board or in their local government. Uh, I have, and on this program, that has come up over and over and over again, no matter where the co-op is, it, it, if it's in Africa or Latin America or Asia, no matter where it is, you'd find people in co-ops really learn how to participate and know the importance of participating in local governments. Uh, can you give us examples of where this work and how you've seen it to work? Well, I, um, again, most of my early uh, years, I worked primarily with the, the rural uh, cooperatives, the, the electric co-ops and the farm farm co-ops, and when you consider small towns uh, in rural communities across the country, uh, first of all, rural America is isolated and distance and low-density population. So by take farmers coming together and um, meeting as a board, running their company, um, as you said, Vernon, they have to um, uh, make collective decisions. Um, uh, you learn that majority vote rules. Uh, if you're a minority, if your your opinion is minority, you, you you made your best effort during a discussion, usually a board meeting uh, or an any meeting. And if the vote majority votes uh, uh, differently, makes a different decision, you have to learn how to be part of that business moving forward, even though you might disagree with the direction um, vote taken, and it, it's similar to our uh, our government. Um, school boards are under stress. Um, people have, I, I mean, just the nature of politics is trying to get consensus. People mm-hmm. disagree. We don't have universal uh, opinions, and so to make uh, our communities, our co-ops, our country um, function and be civil, we have to learn how to manage disagreements. 
and move forward for the benefit of the many. And I think that's what engaging in a board discussion, a give and take of information, a give and take of opinions, um, and then learning how to to accept a vote and keep moving forward is, again, that building block of, of a democracy and, and, and um, in civil discourse, in civil participation. Manage disagreements. And boy, if we could get that one done for the masses of the people in any country, uh, matter of fact, in any home, that yeah. would be fantastic. Well, I, 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 as I said, Vernon, I came out of, um, of politics. I started my career working on Capitol Hill in Washington, and that's when I actually learned co-ops because I, we would see, uh, I worked for a member of Congress who represented uh, Western Wisconsin, and I would see the representatives of the rural electric co-ops and the farm co-ops come in and the credit unions come in. And I was amazed at how co-op um, bridged the Democrat and Republican ideologies. Um, and the history, at least, of co-op development in rural communities was a bit of government investment, federal government investment. You turn it over, you create a rural electric co-op, and then the board manages that business successfully. So it's not like uh, uh, those rural electric co-ops required an ongoing uh, investment. investment from the federal government. It was that initial startup investment, which now, you know, 35 million people in this country get their power through rural electric cooperatives. And Democrats, as we know, sort of like to use government investments to improve people's lives. Uh, I would characterize a Republican uh, philosophy as that people need to stand on their own. And so I watched um, rural legislators, uh, uh, or those who understood rural, like uh, Senator Bob Dole of Kansas. His father was a manager of a farm supply cooperative. Mm. So he was a great voice. He would understand if we, if we invest in co-ops, um, and how people manage their business and, and, and meet their social and economic needs, and the federal government doesn't need to to keep an ongoing uh, uh, support system. Um, and so it really did bridge a Democrat-Republican philosophy, and it sort of marries, in my opinion, the best of both. Uh, some co-ops are difficult to start. Uh, it's, it's different than a small business startup. I mean, I, if I have an idea, I can go and pledge my home as collateral and get a loan, and then I accept responsibility for the business success. And if I don't succeed, my home is collateral. Um, suddenly you're asking, uh, what, housing co-ops, anywhere from 22 units to 200, 2,000 units, people to come together and collectively share responsibility for that economic enterprise or that housing enterprise. So it's more complex than sole proprietorship. But yet, as you pointed out, our housing co-ops, even during the Great Recession, I think what – I don't even know what the default rate is. You probably do. But it was minimal. Um, so it is a good way to um, take a bit of government investment, technical assistance, uh, public policy, the laws uh, of, of housing ownership, uh, joint marketing, uh, which we need our policymakers to embrace, and then enable and empower people to run it for the, their benefit for the future. You know, Dr. Martin Lowry from the Rural Electric has been on this program, and he, uh, I, I just learned a lot. I, I like talking to people like you and him where I can just learn from 
that for I think it's seventy five percent of the land mass of U.S. Uh, the the rural electric cooperatives supply the electric line for seventy five percent of the land, and they all the they had fifty percent of the meters, and they had places like Northern Virginia had the rural electric co-op and in Southern Maryland, which are no longer rural in my head <laughs> because the, the uh, population has just grown so that they are in, in areas that will be urban one day, a lot of these rural electric co-ops. So they played a major, major role, which I didn't know anything about. And the same thing for telephone cooperatives and so many more that cooperative form whenever the community need where the investors won't put their money in, the capitalists won't put their money in it. And so you get people to come together and to solve and supply whatever need there is. Yeah. yeah. We're doing the same. I, I, I continue to uh, do co-op development now, um, and, and I find it a growth area, uh, home care. Think about our, our aging population. Uh, isolation of seniors in their homes, be it urban or rural. And uh, here in, in Wisconsin, we have the only um, woman-owned home care co-op. I mean, there, there, there's, there's uh, worker-owned home care co-ops in the Bronx and in Philadelphia that are quite large and very successful. Um, but again, when you think about who's going to come together, just like the rural electric co-ops were created to deliver electricity, basic human need these days mm -hmm. uh, to rural homes. So, too, we've got isolated uh, uh, elders in, in, in rural communities. So uh, creating home care uh, and meeting their needs so that they can stay independent in their homes. But on the other side of the equation is um, those are jobs that need to stay in those communities. They cannot be exported to China or uh, Indonesia. Um, that's where I see co-ops, again, coming to identify new needs and, and answering that call of how do we use that co-op model, which is so flexible, and, and empower both the home care workers who would then work with those elders and those with special needs that may need and prefer to stay in their homes, be it urban or rural. So it's very exciting things that um, in, in, in this whole worker co-op um, trend where um, there's a number of very talented young people emerging, working with existing small businesses who may not uh, have a family member to sell the business to, and we're developing models where those small businesses agree to sell to their employees. So that's a whole job retention strategy. So there's a lot of interest in, 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 in dynamic young people emerging to use that co-op model to meet our current needs and our future needs, just as the rural electric co-ops help string electricity uh, to all those rural houses, 35 million houses. Judy, I'm, I'm in the process of working with the employees to transition my business into a worker-owned co-op, and it Bravo. is hard. It <laughs> is not easy. I thought it was, you know, I told a gentleman from Don uh, that who's working with us, Jim, Jim Johnson, who's been on the show too, you know, it'd probably take us three to five months, just like I started a business, it didn't take long. But getting people to change their attitude from a worker to an owner is, is not an easy process. Getting people to 
have make decisions. It's like what I found out in 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 uh, housing co-ops is getting people to go from a tenant mentality where they can pick up their phone and say, "Come fix this," and and so they don't care as much about it or take better care. When they once they become an owner, it's a whole different view of how they handle and treat the assets or the company or the enterprise. Uh, that that is that takes time. So it may be a year or two to do this transition. Yes. Uh, which I'm okay with now that I've gotten to, that's what it's going to take. And we're having a training session today at one and the subject is trust mm-hmm. um, because that came up in another one that that's where people had difficulty. We don't have to take another break. We're going to come back to this development of worker co-ops uh, because I would really like people to, out there to get this information in case you want to start a business or buy the business you're in working together. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Welcome back to Everything Cooperative. This is Vernon Oaks, and we have Judy Zigwak on the phone with us this morning from Wisconsin. We're talking about cooperatives. We, when we left the air a minute ago, we were talking about the development of worker co-ops. Um, Judy, can, let, let me ask you to back up and talk about your life experience. I, I, uh, I, I'm thankful that you were honored and inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame, which is the highest honor that one can get that's in this cooperative world. And when I listened to you and, and, and uh, your history, I was very, very impressed. So could you start back by how you got started in the political world, learn about co-ops, and then been working in co-ops, and we'll come back to this development piece. Oh, sure. Thanks. for. Well, I uh, was interested in politics. Uh, I I guess I watched, uh, again, my my parents were involved in local government, and my father was uh, Army Reserves and and, and in government. So I I grew out of a family that looked at public service. And to me, politics is not a bad name. Um, So I packed up, graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison, and packed my bags and headed to Washington, D.C., and found a job on Capitol Hill, uh, and as I said, uh, not only did that teach me about politics at the national level, but I got to know uh, co-ops. Um, in 1981, I had the opportunity to move back to Wisconsin and join staff of the Wisconsin Federation Co-ops, where I really got to know the breadth of co-ops in all sectors of the, our economy and, and really, again, appreciated co-op issues were a bridge between Democrat and Republican. I learned how to lobby both sides of the aisle. Uh, and both sides of the aisle, like co-ops, if you will, we wore the white hat. Um, okay. so then I progressed, uh, moved back to Washington, worked for the nation's dairy co-ops, and was tapped to head up a, a bold initiative uh, called the National Rural Cooperative Development Task Force, which was housed at the National Co-op Bank. And, and help manage uh, a coalition of 110 organizations, nationwide organizations. And, and our mission was to reinvigorate USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture's commitment and investment in co-ops for rural economic development. Uh, new, new demands were emerging. We were moving beyond just the agriculture sector. As I mentioned earlier, suddenly we had hospitals that wanted to form a co-op. Uh, I remember... Uh, requests coming in from um, the Hmong population that had settled in Wisconsin uh, and wanted a marketing co-op for their craft. So new, if you will, 
were emerging. So we felt that USDA was the one federal agency that had a history of investing in co-ops and using co-ops as an economic development strategy. So I worked with the task force and from there became head of the Co-op Development Foundation based in Washington and also served simultaneously as vice president for domestic uh, uh, affairs for the National Co-op Business Association. Um, but then I got tapped to move back to Wisconsin and, and served as a deputy secretary uh, for the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, uh, only because the secretary was my uh, colleague in crime and co-ops. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, uh, I had worked with Rod Milsestein for over 30 years in, in the journey of co-ops, and he uh, moved back to, to work with him in, in, in the department. So how did you, how did you get, what's the strategy for getting for developing co-ops, particularly worker cooperatives, but any of them? What's this, how does it work? And, well, and, uh, first, I, I was asked that by my board chair when I was head of the Co-op Development Foundation. How do we do, do new co-ops? And my answer is you make it somebody's job and pay them a salary to help people form co-ops. It's like any other enterprise. in this country, uh, or maybe, you know, if I'm a small, as said earlier, if I want to create a business, or as you did, Vernon, we simply get an idea, we find the financing, and it's our our enterprise. But working to create a cooperative requires somebody to help manage the group, help the group go through market analysis, help the group go through uh, a business feasibility plan, uh, understand the financing, what is the market, what's your income, what's your, you know, how much debt can you carry, should you carry. It, it, it Again, coming back to that collective decision. So my answer is we need to have good, solid uh, co-op development experts in the country, just as we have economic development practitioners in this country, usually funded by local government, state government, uh, even the national level. We have small business development centers. Um, so starting business is really hard, um, and starting co-ops is even more difficult. So, well, agriculture co-ops, farmers might understand they need a co-op to help them collect the milk, the dairy farmers, collect their milk and get it processed before it spoils. Worker co-op is going to be different, and especially, I think, the conversion or the sale of your business as you're, you're experiencing, Vernon, because you're suddenly asking people who showed up every day and didn't have to worry about how to cover a paycheck mm-hmm. to assume that responsibility. <laughs> yep. And I think, you know, for at least my generation and my parents' generation, the U.S. economy was based on you work for one company for your yeah, 40, 40, 50 years, you have a pension, you've collected your paycheck, and you're done. But we're seeing this economy, the U.S. economy, change so much that that's no longer how one is going to earn an income. And then I see the young people coming out of the Occupy Wall Street and enthusiasm who understand that their career is not going to be 35 years or 40 years with one company. Um, So it's probably the younger folks who are going to be more adaptable to a worker co-op, employee ownership. Um, So I think it's an age (laughs) 
I don't know about what you're experiencing, but depending on the age of your employees, um, are they willing to, to assume the risk? Because an individual entrepreneur is ready to go, has an appetite for risk, mm-hmm. where if you're just an employee and you're showing up and you want to do your best, you're not signing up for the risk of running a business. And that's the major education transition that has to occur. You know, Lita Mack uh, is a city council person in Greenbelt, Maryland. Greenbelt, Maryland uh, has seven co-ops in that little bitty city right outside of D.C., north of D.C. And they have an incubator, and they're trying to get three more co-ops on right now. And I asked her the question early on, and she said, I asked her the question, why aren't there more co-ops? When you look at all of the benefits of co-ops, and there are numerous, uh, which we haven't gotten to the wealth creation part of it, why aren't there more? And her, she had a simple answer, and it is, it's hard work, (laughs) okay? I was looking for uh, the the wealthy people in, in our economy, you only have so much production, uh, gross national product is what it's called. And so, so much of it goes to the people that have capital. It pays them in terms of interest and so much goes to labor. And so I kind of felt like the capitalists did not want the laborers to know about co-ops because they would end up getting a piece of the profit if they form co-ops. And in fact, somebody, one lady on this program said, that's a very sinister view. And I said, well, I grew up black in America. I got a sinister view of some wealthy people. Um, um, I would like to think it isn't that, but Lita Max, and now in my experience, it, it is hard work, and it's hard to get people to transform that. And I do see an age, a little bit of age, but more I see instead of ages, like the single mom that has her child, children that she has to take care of, they want to they want to know they have a check. <laughs> they don't want well if if uh, after we pay the rent, we'll we'll decide you know. Who gets what? No, they don't want to hear that. So that's part of the problem. It's not only age, but it's what responsibility somebody has uh, and their willingness uh, to go out and take that risk. And a lot right. of people are not. Yeah, but willingness, but but probably even more fundamental, uh, the ability can can their life afford the risk? Yeah. Um, I think the other component, uh, and I've spent a lot of time thinking, uh, why are there no not more co-ops, or why are co-ops not really respected in the economy? And part of it, part of my conclusion is we have an American culture, free market enterprise, rugged individualism, and and it's sort of what we're taught. Uh, this is how people become wealthy. This is how we succeed. And I think as you started the program, Vernon. We're not taught in business schools that don't say, no, there is another way to organize capital and labor. Um, it's called a co-op. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes it gets tainted as, you know, the socialism, communism. That that's can be a huge barrier. Uh, I have experienced that in some parts of the country when we talk co-ops. They don't, they don't want to use the word co-op. So there's something in the American culture philosophy um, that also dampens uh, uh, depreciation, in my opinion, for co-ops. Dampens the appreciation? Appreciation. Appreciation. Okay. Because um, I couldn't understand when, I guess it was McCarthy era or the 50s and the 60s, I was told, 
by a good friend, Roger Wilcox, who's 95 years old and developed a lot of housing co-ops in the 50s and 60s. And he was telling me that they, they were called socialist organizations. I said, how could it? When the, when the second principle, the first one is volunteer and open membership. The second principle is democratic member control. One member, one vote. How more democratic can you get? Um, so I got. that's when I was thinking that some people just don't want co-ops for their own personal gain because there's. I don't see the socialism or communism at all in this is the most democratic organization I've ever, that I've come across in my lifetime. And it also does what you were talking about earlier. It teaches folks how to work in a democratic organization and how to participate in that civic engagement that you talked about. But uh, we, we might say that, you know, I think that is the good thing about co-ops in the United States because they are in the culture of free market, free enterprise. We members of co-ops often don't know that they're members of co-ops, but that's maybe okay to the degree that they're successful business. But there are other you know, parts of the world where co-ops, you know, face it, in the Soviet Union, Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, co-ops were forced on people. So it was not a voluntary uh, 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 engagement in joining of a co-op and mm -hmm. becoming a member of co-op. So, so every country, just like we have different cultures and, 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 and it grows out of our history and our roots, how cultures get developed in, 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 in different countries in the world. So, too, I think the way co-ops unfolded in, in, in the Soviet Union sphere tainted co-ops for a lot. And I remember as the Soviet Union was breaking apart, we get a lot of people from Czechoslovakia, Albania. Uh, they want to talk about farm credit. And I, as soon as I used the word co-op, they said, stop, we don't want to hear the word. So I think we have to be respectful that other parts of the world, it, it has a bad, and if they didn't know democracy and they didn't understand it and it was not part of the culture, um, and, and I suspect some of that, the communist approach to co-ops, have spilled over into the attitudes of some here in the United States. Okay. Despite the fact that we have good, strong, free enterprise co-ops operating successfully in the free enterprise, free market economy. Well, also this rugged individualism. Um, if you look at any rugged individualist, whether it's John Wayne playing a cowboy movie or uh, a military person, he didn't do anything by himself. It's just that that rugged individualism still had a lot of people in order to be successful. And I found that I got my MBA from Stanford, that Leland Stanford uh, was a railroad baron, and he, as a senator, put in put up laws to start worker co-ops. They didn't get passed in his time. So somewhere he got the light. I heard it was about the same time he started Stanford, that, 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 that co-ops – the benefit of co-ops for the everyday person. And the everyday person is what I like about co-ops also. It really helps to teach how to run a business, how to work together. And the third principle is member economic participation. They normally put something in. It could be small. It could be paid out over time. But when and if there's a profit and when and if the, the members or board decide to, to pass out in dividends and they get some of the money back and they can build wealth. We have to take another break. This is our last and final break. Judy, the time goes by real quick. We have one more segment. I want to talk about a couple other principles and talk about this politics um, and how to get more politicians involved in cooperatives. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Information is power. 
the National Co-op Bank uh, loans money or helps co-ops no matter what segment of the cooperative world it's in. They were formed in the 80s by Congress to provide funding for cooperatives in particular in these uh, limited resource communities. When we took the break, we were talking about the principles. The first principle is voluntary and open membership. The second is democratic member control. The third is member economic participation. And the fourth one is autonomy and independence. And Judy, when Dame Pauline Green, who's the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, was on, she talked about in some parts of the world, particularly Africa, that uh, the the individual co-ops did not have independence uh, and autonomy. And that just means that every co-op controls their own business. They, they not only own it, but they control it and they make the decision. She said that's changing now, uh, just like the, the way, I guess, in, in, uh, in uh, Russia, you would find that they were forced people into co-ops. So it wasn't volunteer, but now it, it is changing. So um, have you found that the same thing with this autonomy and independence around the world? I, I have not worked, uh, Vernon, extensively. I have colleagues that worked in international co-op development, in, and um, that is the feedback I would get. And, and that was the work of uh, their work was to help, again, transition what – and I think in, in, in Africa and in, in, the, in the developing countries um, – the, the, the use of co-op, in my opinion, was well-intentioned because the government wanted people to be empowered. So if you take, again, if the U.S. government said we're going to invest in, in rural electric co-ops and then turn it over and let the co-ops function as voluntary uh, businesses to serve their rural constituents, uh, I, I suspect what happened in some of the developing world is they liked the concept and they wanted to turn it over in that transition never happened. So we have different histories of how co-ops came into being. In my opinion or observation, in, in, in the former Soviet Union, they really were forced upon people. I think in the developing world, they were viewed as a tool to help empower people, but the transition to voluntary is only now underway. Okay. I forgot to mention in my co-op career, because uh, I know that National Co-op Bank sponsors your program, I'm also on the board of the National Co-op Bank. I'm one of the board directors as well as uh, the Capital Impact Partners. So I continue to be involved at the national level through service on those two boards. And the um, – just for – Macmillan, I believe, from Cabot Creamery said that Chuck Snyder was an angel for the work that they do at NCB in helping to create co-ops and both help them to survive – yeah. by help bringing in finances that they may need as they grow. Yeah, and and like all banks, uh, the National Co-op Bank uh, went through a rough period with, with during the Great Recession, but um, uh, Chuck uh, and his management team, along with the board, I learned so much that if you have a bank with good management and a board and they have a shared commitment to the mission of the organization, which is financing co-ops, uh, NCB survived the Great Recession and came out stronger, and and uh, it worked. Chuck and his management team worked so well with with the members, housing co-ops, uh, food co-ops, uh, 
and again, that's an example, just like the workers, worker-owned co-ops managed their way through the Great Recession. Um, I have the highest regard for Chuck and, and his management team and managing through the Great Recession so that it continues to meet the mission as it was created by Congress in the 80s. And that was Roberta McDonald that made that statement from Cabot Creamery, Cabot, Cabot Cheese. Um, but, you know, I've also talked on the program about what a hard mission that must be because I thought I wanted to be a banker when I was in uh, the MBA program. And, and it, and it seems like that most bankers want um, to loan money with to people that already have capital they, because the, there's only three things the bank are interested in, and that is getting their money back and getting their money back and getting their money back. So they normally look for people that already have capital so that if this particular loan goes under, they can reach out and get their money back uh, with their interest. So to try to say, okay, you've got to loan money to people that are in limited resource communities or low-income communities, so they don't have capital. So I'm thinking that Chuck and the group people at NCB have a very, very, very tough job to do, and I would think that from what I've what I've been told on the program and talking to people, they look people in the eye and get to character. Uh, uh, do you, does it look like you're going to be successful and do you have the kind of character that said that you will pay us back as opposed to looking at capital? What's your view on that one? That's my conclusion. Well, I, I, I haven't heard the look in the eye, but that would not surprise me. And I, what I was going to say, Vern, is that again, when you step back and look at, uh, as you just articulated, banks and in, in, in the, the, the investor-owned banking world, um, think about it. We have both the National Consumer Co-op Bank created by Congress and the parallel in the farm credit area. CoBank is a national uh, co-op bank that serves the agriculture sector. Um, and both of those were created by Congress. So we're back to our politics and our public policy that there was a time for the farm credit system, that was the 30s. And, again, investor-owned banks uh, really didn't have the ability to survive the boom and bust cycle of agriculture. That's where we started our conversation when you think about droughts and farmers' ability to pay back. Um, and, and then the parallel is the National Consumer Co-op Bank, or NCB, um, it was also created by Congress when investor-owned um, banks didn't understand housing co-ops and how to loan to share loans. Just didn't understand it. So, so we we, we good we the good news is we had a Congress and have had a Congress over the years that understands the importance of co-ops. Going back to the 30s, that happened for rural communities. In the 80s, uh, we you know the investment in the National Co-op Bank. So there there are moments in time in in our Congress where they said we're going to use and help start up institutions that can provide financing and other services to create co-ops to meet the needs, the economic and social needs of people. That is not driven by the investor-owned model. Well, again, that look in the eye was my conclusion. <laughs> not, not anybody has told me that. <laughs> but it's more like getting to it. I mean, how else can you do this loan when there's no capital already out there? It, it has the belief in the model itself. And that people coming together, and that's what's found that the the um, history shows that co-op enterprises don't fail as often as with not not nearly the the amount as the other capitalistic model uh, businesses. 
So because people are coming together, and it may be also because there's this one year, two year of learning that I'm going through right now where people have to learn how to manage this and they pick on each other's skill sets as tools and therefore they have a better chance of success. Uh, but the success is out there. The, the success that the history shows is much more successful. What I want to ask you about, and you've led right into it, is how do I've tried to get Barack Obama on the program or his wife, Michelle. Um, I have been talking about seeing if we could reach out to Hillary Clinton to get her on their program or get involved. I've seen a picture of her where she, I think it, went, I think it was Africa. She was at a, at a co-op opening, and Michelle was at a food co-op opening in California. I saw a picture of that. And I understood just from last week's program that Jeb Bush had visited the Italian prisons where they have co-ops in them. So I'm saying, how do we get the Democrats and the Republicans more involved so we can have the 30s and the 80s kinds of legislation that help co-ops to bridge the gap between the Democrats and the Republicans? I like the way you've talked about how co-ops do that, and we are the people with the white hats. So how, do, how do, can we get the current politicians involved in co-ops? Well, my strategy is always to first understand their interests and what they'd like to accomplish. I'm hopeful in the instances of um, President Obama and Mrs. Obama that post-White House service, I'm hoping that the president will use his expertise and knowledge uh, to go back and start addressing job creation in urban areas. So I think we need to be a partner in that. How can we help? I think this emerging worker co-op conversion is a strategy that we need to invest in, and perhaps he uses the power of his fundraising. Um, so I think we, we need to understand what their prior priorities are and, and make sure that we're at the table as a partner to help. Now, the other simple answer I always start out with is asking people if they're a member of a co-op, and you'll get members of Congress and probably staff and say no. Mm-hmm. But I would bet you 80% are members of a credit union on Capitol Hill. <laughs> and they don't know that their paycheck is going into their credit union, which is a co-op. So it's almost asking the simple question. Uh, and, and, and the credit unions are probably the most, the easiest way to open their eyes by asking the question, are you a member of a credit union? You know, we only, we only have one minute to go. So how would you, what would you like to say to the audience out there about co-ops in this one minute? Let's develop more. Let's develop more. Okay. Let's develop more. Let's get the politicians figure out what what they want to do and to be at the table with them. I like that a lot. Julie, thank you so much for being on. I continue to love to learn, and you've taught me quite a few things here today, particularly I like this white hat cooperatives have and how to bridge the gap between the Democrats and the politicians. And i uh, love to have you on again, and we'll figure out how we can develop more co-ops. Thanks. Thank you. See you next Thursday, everybody. Have a great, great week. Fourteen fifty W O L.